There's one question that I've, I've been discussing a lot lately. And the question can be summed up in, in many ways, can be talked about in many ways, but ultimately it's around three words. Trump or Hillary? <laughs> All right, and every four years this type of conversation comes along. And while I, always, I, I find politics fascinating and I enjoy that conversation, I also know there are a few things more tiring than a pastor telling people who he thinks they should vote for. Right? It's not that I don't think it matters. Um, it's just that as a, as a pastor, I should approach the question with a little bit of a slant. But I will say that this election has been evidence of something I've been feeling more and more lately. Two things in particular that I've, I've been feeling more and more as a Christian in, in this world in which I live. First is that I don't, I don't feel at home. I don't quite feel like, like I fit. I don't feel like the, the options available to me make sense. The world in which I live just doesn't feel like home. And secondly is that the things just feel like they're out of control. Like they're spiraling or spinning in a direction that, that is really troubling and problematic. Which is the worst feeling in, in our culture in particular. That, that we in suburban American culture, if there's anything we want, it's It's control. To have control over our lives. And without control, we're, we're anxious, we're tense, we're uncertain. And if I could describe our culture with three words right now, it probably would be tense, anxious, and uncertain. But I don't feel that way just because of an election season in which is, is, is very unsettling in many ways. But also I feel that way because I, I, I feel like there's this just collision of worldviews happening within our culture now. That, that very different ways of seeing the world are colliding with one another. And that the, in particular the Christian way of seeing the world is increasingly seen as suspect to many around us. Uh, two quick examples. The first, the, the Barna Group um, recently did a research where they, they asked U.S. adults what they considered extreme about certain religious practices or different religions. And, and what they found is is that the first 52% of U.S. adults think that the traditional Christian sexual ethic, that, that all sex outside of heterosexual marriage is, is not within God's design, that 52% of U.S. adults think that's, that's extreme. And not just wrong or mistaken or, or incorrect, but, but actually extreme. And 60% of, of U.S. adults think it's, it's extreme to try to convert someone from another faith in, into your faith. All right, so, so things that, that are right at the heart of, of what Christianity is are not just considered wrong or mistaken, but actually in some ways extreme. And even though I tend to be very skeptical of studies like this, it, it rings true to my, the personal experience that I've had just in the last several months, couple years. This is one example. Another example, um, quickly, is that there's a, a university, Christian college in Massachusetts called Gordon College, um, where their students were volunteering in the nearby school district in Lynn, Massachusetts, which was a district that was largely under-resourced students. 85 to 90 percent of those students were, were in poverty. And so these, these students from this Christian school were going to volunteer in this school district. But a couple of years ago, the school district um, voted to remove all of the Gordon College students from volunteering and serving in the Lynn School District. And the reason they gave, they cited, was because the Gordon College um, a sexual ethic is a traditional Christian one. And because of that, they decided that the students could not volunteer. Because their, their view of sexuality was so troubling, their, their students couldn't come and volunteer in the Lynn School District. And to explain this decision, um, one of the school district committee men um, 
said this in, in the local paper. He said, you have to draw the line somewhere. If the Ku Klux Klan, for example, made the best school lunch in the world, we're not going to hire them to make the school lunch in the Lynn Public Schools. That's an extreme example, obviously, and yet it's, it's a highlight of, 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 of something I felt, which is that as a Christian, some of the things I believe deeply, aren't just, they're not just wrong or incorrect or mistaken, but they're actually, they're actually harmful. They're actually they're out of bounds. And so it's raised the question for me, how, how as a Christian do I respond to that? Or how do I live in a world in which I'm not quite at home, um, where I'm, I'm most certainly not in, in control? of how other people view me or think of me or, or, or reflect on me. And so a lot of Christians in our co- cultural context right now are very anxious, right? But put the question to me now, I'm not, I'm not so anxious anymore. I'm, there's something that's changed, something that happened that I'll, I'll get more into later. But I, I'm fine with the culture being a little bit hostile or a little bit questioning of, of some of the ways I see the world. I'm okay with an election season, which is unsettling. I'm not anxious like I once was. They put the question to me now, and I have an answer. A Trump or Hillary? Daniel. <laughs> Daniel is a, a teenager, when we first read of him here, who has been forcibly removed from his family, from his parents, to go live in a country, a, a city that is hostile to him and that has the explicit purpose of wiping his faith, his religion, away from him. And yet even though Daniel will live in far more trying circumstances than I will ever probably face, he was not anxious, he was confident. He did not fret, but he was faithful. And he did not hitch his hopes to the powers of his day, and so his hope was never shaken, even when his life looked like it was about to be snuffed out. So why? Why was Daniel able to live with far more faithfulness and confidence in the midst of a world that was far more hostile to him than I often find Christians in our context are living now? Why? Why is that? I think it's because Daniel understands something we need to learn that's at the heart of his book, the heart of the, where we're going to spend the next eight weeks as a church in this book of Daniel, that he understood something that's at the heart of the Bible story and is at the heart of his life, that you and I, we were never meant to have control, that we were always called to a life without control. We were always called into a world that was going to not quite feel at home. And when you see that, when you understand that, when you begin to, to give up the the, the illusion that you can actually be in control of your life and direct everything in the way that you want it to go, when you actually come to terms with that, it opens up a whole new life to you. And so that's where the story of Daniel starts. That we were never meant to have control. And when you begin to see that, two things become clear that we're going to unpack in these seven verses this morning. That first, um, there's a danger to trying to be in control of your life. It has to be called, you have to see there's a danger to being in control of your life. And secondly, there's actually good news in living your life without control. So the danger of trying to grab control of your life and the good news of releasing control of your life. And so Daniel 1, the seven verses we just read, they begin in a dark place. The year is, is 605 BC, um, so a quite a long time ago. And, and Babylon, this country, has become the world power of the day. And Nebuchadnezzar has just become the king of Babylon. So he has just become the most, most powerful man in all the world. And for whatever reason, either Jerusalem had made him angry and he wants to, to flex his muscles to them, or just because he wants to show everyone he is the most powerful person in the world. We're not sure why. But for whatever the reason, he has, he has turned his attention to Jerusalem and he has 
demanded that they send some of their best kids, the, the kids within the royal family, into exile with him. That he's gone into the temple where pe- the God's people worshiped God and he, he has removed their gold, removed all of the, the ornate um, instruments they used to worship God and he's taken them off to put in his own temple for his own God. And so all this raises the question, because Israel, they're God's chosen people, um, right? They're, they're God's special possession. And, and so how do they end up here? How do God's people end up the subjects in exile of this, this foreign power, this foreign ruler? If God's really in charge, how does, how does this happen? To answer that question, you need to understand the story of a man named Hezekiah. Hezekiah lived about 120 years or so before this moment with Daniel in his own life. And Hezekiah was the king of Israel, living in Jerusalem, and was largely a, a good king. But towards the end of his life, he gets sick. And he's so sick that uh, the prophet Isaiah goes to Hezekiah and says to Hezekiah, you're going to die. You need to get your affairs in order. Your life is about to end. You will not be healed. So Hezekiah responds with, with weeping and prayer He pleads for God to to heal him. He weeps before God. Um, And so Isaiah, the prophet, goes to Hezekiah a second time, and he he says three things. First, he says, Hezekiah, God has seen your tears. He's heard your prayer. Secondly, he says, and Hezekiah, God has said, you're going to live for 15 more years. You're going to get 15 more years life. And the third thing then that Isaiah says to Hezekiah is, but there's this country, Assyria, that you're deathly afraid of. The Assyria that day was, was the most powerful nation in all the world. It was a brutal country that had co- conquered most of the known world at the time. It, it conquered most of the world around Hezekiah, and Hezekiah knew he was probably next. They were going to come for him. So Hezekiah is terrified. And Isaiah says to Hezekiah, Okay, God's heard your prayers. He's going to heal you. You're going to live 15 more years. But third, trust me, trust God to deliver you from Assyria. Don't build up your military. Don't form a military alliance with another country. Don't do anything because God is going to save you from this coming threat. And so the scene goes to black. The story ends. It's Isaiah 38 that we read that story. And when Isaiah 39 opens up, the very next chapter is the story comes back to light Hezekiah is in the temple with leaders from this small upstart country that very few people have heard of, Babylon. And he's showing these leaders from Babylon all the gold in his temple. He's showing them how impressive he is as king, how much wealth he has available to him, so that Babylon will enter into a military alliance with him. So that Babylon and Hezekiah join forces, then Assyria can't get to them. And so Isaiah catches winds of this, and Isaiah meets Hezekiah in the temple and says to Hezekiah, all of this gold that you're showing Babylon, one day they're going to they're gonna take it out of this temple and take it down to Babylon, and it's going to be theirs. And Hezekiah, your own descendants, your own children's children's children, they're going to be taken off to Babylon because you did not trust God. And so 120 years later, 100 years later or so, from that moment in the temple with Hezekiah and Babylon, Daniel 1. 
And we may be tempted to say, well, Hezekiah, what an idiot. I would trust God. And yet, just, just to, to understand the moment, the choice before Hezekiah, Assyria was a brutal country. They, they had perfected the art of execution. They killed people in ways that are so graphic, I can't explain to you here. It was, it's troubling. They did it on purpose to frighten people. And so we can understand, I mean, I think the best way for us to imagine what Hezekiah faced is to imagine, and I know this is far-fetched, but imagine ISIS takes over Iowa, and God says to you, I want you to sell all your guns. I want you to tear down all your fences, and I want you to leave your doors unlocked. How many of you are just going to trust God? It's going to be easy. And yet that was, that was the choice before Hezekiah. God said, Hezekiah, I will protect you. I will deliver you. But he couldn't trust God. And so 100 years later or so from that moment in the temple, we get Daniel 1. And it's important because it frames the whole story of Daniel for us. They hear again these first two verses from Daniel 1. Now with that backdrop of Isaiah and Hezekiah in your mind. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. When when you read that, it's actually way worse than than even it sounds there. That that, that phrase, the land of Shinar, is very intentional. That Daniel doesn't say that um, this gold and these people went to Babylon. He says they went to the land of Shinar. And the reason is because in Genesis 11, the, the phrase land of Shinar is, is present in the story of the Tower of Babel. And the story of the Tower of Babel is very, very clear that that's where everyone who didn't like God and wanted to rebel against God and, and, and work against God, they all moved to the land of Shinar and tried to build this really big tower for themselves. And so when Daniel uses this phrase, I'm going to the land of Shinar. We were shipped off to the land of Shinar. He's saying we went into the very land that is full of people absolutely hostile to God. And so the story begins with God's people, the descendants of the royal family, being forced to go into the very place where everyone's opposed to God, where even the, the instruments that were used to worship God in the temple are being liquidated out and, go in and, and put in the temple of the place where people are opposed to God in every way possible. That's where our story begins. But before we jump further into the story, I want to pause because what you have in these two verses, as well as the backdrop, the story of Isaiah and Hezekiah, is is just this danger, this warning of of trying to grab control of your life. It's two two dangers, two lessons to pull out before we jump further into the story. That first, either you, you will trust God to run your life or you will trust yourself to run your life. The Hezekiah had an excruciating choice before him. And you at at moments in your life will have excruciating choices before you. Trust God in the face of what seems like certain failure or certain disaster. Or carve out a backup plan for yourself. Carve out another way forward. And we Christians, we do that. We seek after political power on both the left and the right. Even when it ruins our witness. We do it with money, right? We, we refuse to trust God to provide for us. And so we, we can't be people of generosity because we, we can't trust God to provide for our needs. Right? I've done it in, in being a pastor, in, especially in church planning, where I just think, you know, God, if you let me control everything, if you let me live out the, the vision of what I think all the right things are moving forward, things would go great, right? I try to grab control of everything because I think if I just run things, everything would be perfect, 
And yet, if, if you try to live in control of your life, you're going to be anxious. You're going to be uncertain. You're going to be fearful. Because you were never meant to have control over your life. We were never meant to have control. And yet, that doesn't mean we're, we're to be passive people. We'll get into the, the call to action that comes from a life without control. And yet, the, the reality is either you think you're better at running your life or you think God's better at running your life. But there's no, there's no middle, there's no merging of those two perspectives. And Hezekiah thought he had a better plan than God. And Daniel from Daniel 1 through this whole story, Daniel will be very different. That even his life feels out of control. He trusts God. And so either, either you trust God to, to lead your life or you trust yourself to lead your life. But secondly, and this is the harder one to take in, is if you don't trust God to, 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 to take control of your life, it means you'll know God more through his discipline than, than through his deliverance. One of the sad things, of, when you read Isaiah 38 and 39, of God coming to Hezekiah and saying, I'll save you from Assyria, is we'll never know what God had in mind. It looks certain Jerusalem would be ruined and Assyria would come in and take them over. And yet God had said, I will protect you from that. But we'll never know what that meant, what that, what that would have looked like because Hezekiah carved out his own plan. And as a side note real quick, I think this is one of the, re- the compelling reasons to believe the Bible is actually telling the truth about its own history. Because as you read the Hebrew scriptures, you don't find Israel like whitewashing their own history, presenting themselves in the best possible light. Right? In fact, I mean, you see here, they, they say it's our own fault we went into exile. It's our own fault that we lost to the Babylonians. Right? We sinned. We have to repent. Right? If you read history of the Babylonians or the Assyri- Assyrians, it reads more like um, political propaganda than it does actual history because they're always presenting themselves in great light and they did the most amazing things and their king was the most powerful person ever. I mean, it's strange to imagine a political leader embellishing on their accomplishments or their achievements. Um, and, and you might get a picture of what Assyrians and Babylonians wrote about themselves, but not Israel. And it's one reason why we can have credibility that this is true. Because they're not whitewashing their history. They're not saying, look at how great we are. They're saying, we messed up and we are paying for it. And I would just say, if, if, if you're always trying to wrestle control back from God, most likely you're just going to know his discipline more than his deliverance. You're going you're to live in Babylon instead of in watching God move in ways that, that are beyond imagination. And we will never know what he had in mind for Assyria because God's people couldn't trust him. So we were never meant to have control. And I think the biggest key to whether or not you're trying to grab control of your life away from God is, is how much anxiety do you fear? Do you have? How much fear do you have? There's a danger in trying to, to grab control of your life. There's a better way to live. There's actually good news in giving up control and in, in living a life without control. And I realize that that sounds like... Uh, a paradox, because the best four words in Daniel chapter 1 are also the worst four words in Daniel chapter 1. That verse, or verse 2 in chapter 1. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. There's, there's no question from the beginning. The reason Daniel is being removed from his family is going to a culture that wants to destroy his faith and everything he believes in. The reason why Daniel's friends and Daniel's own life will constantly be at risk is because the Lord gave Jehoiakim into the king's hand. There's no doubt from the beginning of Daniel who is in control of this story. 
That it may look like this world power, Babylon, and this, this powerful man, Nebuchadnezzar, is controlling history and driving things in the direction they wanted to go. But Daniel 1, 2 says, no. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And when you read these verses, it, it, it sort of, it, it's more disheartening, it's more discouraging, because this is really tragic stuff that's happening. As we've mentioned, God's people are being forcibly removed from their home. In particular, I mean, parents, imagine your teenager is removed from your home and taken to a city that is, is dead set against God, and, and they're going to move there, and the whole purpose of, of moving your teenager there is for them to brainwash them and, and make them worship other gods and make them become Babylonians. That's why the Babylonians changed the names of Daniel and his friends. So when you get to the end of the chapter one, it ends on this very stark note that the Babylonians by this name change are declaring power and, and, and might over Daniel and his friends. That Daniel, that name means God is my judge. But the Babylonians are going to call him Belteshazzar, which means Prince of Bel. The Bel was the God that Nebuchadnezzar worshipped. Hananiah, which means beloved of the Lord, will now become Shadrach, which means taught by the sun god. Mishael, which means who is like God, now is Meshach, which means who is like Venus. Venus, another false god. And Azariah, which means the Lord is my help, will now be called Abednego, which means the servant of Nego, another false god. Right, this isn't even remotely subtle. Right? The Babylonians, every time they say Daniel's name, Belteshazzar, you're a prince of Bel. Right? You're taught by the sun god. Who's like Venus? The Babylonians think they are in control. They are flexing their muscles. And we, we are left as, as the people of God to ask the question, why would God do this? How can God be in control and these things happen? Or that maybe you hear this story and think one of two things, right? Either you think, well, this is why I need control of my life over God, because God does things like this, where he puts people into impossible circumstances and leads them into pain and suffering. That's why I need control of my life, because I wouldn't do that to myself. Or maybe you think more skeptically, well, that's why there's, there's not a God, because just terrible things happen to people all the time, and there's no way a good God could happen, and these sorts of things happen to teenagers and families and kids. And I understand those two positions, but I would say... There's actually really good news in those four words, the Lord gave and the Lord gave. There's really good news there of the fact that God is in control, even when terrible things happen, for two reasons. The first, a life without control is a life where, where your suffering will never be in vain. Right, I said those four words, they're the hardest and they're the best words, because the fact that the Lord gave Daniel into exile means God is the source of Daniel's pain. And yet it also means that, that Daniel cannot look at his suffering in a meaningless way. Because the reality is when, when you suffer, when, when pain enters into your life, there's probably, there's a number of ways you can react, but I think three stand out. One is that, that there is no God, which means your suffering actually is meaningless. Right? There's no meaning behind it. There's no um, divine author who, uh, or higher power that's in the midst of your pain, suffering, trying to either remove it from you or work some good in you through that suffering. Right, so if there's no God, your suffering really is meaningless. Your pain is real. There's no meaning behind it. There's no greater good coming. Two, though, the, the, there is a God. And, and a lot of people say, but, but that God, he's not all powerful. Or maybe he didn't foresee it coming. Or God didn't want it to happen to you. But it's just sort of like an accident or something. And, 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 and I would just say two things to that. First, it's not terribly encouraging when you really think of it. Like imagine if Daniel 1 had started by, by Daniel saying, well, God, he, he couldn't really stop the Babylonians and, sin, and make all this thing happen. He didn't see it coming. 
Um, right, like God, God's up in heaven and, and bad things happen and then he, like he shuffles his papers and he tries to get things back under control and bad things just keep happening and God's like, oh no, what's going on? Like he just, that's sort of the image that, 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 that's given if God's not all powerful or not in control. That's not how Daniel sees this story at all. So, so one problem, it's not terribly encouraging to look at God that way. Like, like there are accidents that just happen because one, if it's an accident, that means it's, it, it actually is meaningless, right? If it's an accident and God, God didn't see it coming, then, then what, makes you, what gives you a sense of confidence that he can prevent it from happening again <laughs> or actually rescue you from it? If it's an accident and God's not in control, that, that's deeply discouraging. But two, the reality is the Bible doesn't let us out that way. It is abundantly clear here. Everything terrible that will happen to Daniel in his life is because the Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And the Bible's not, it doesn't, it doesn't waffle on this point. God is in control. And the good and the evil that is in this world, God either permits, allows, could have stopped, but doesn't. Or sometimes, as in this case, actually leads his people into suffering to bring them back to himself. And I realize that that is hard medicine, but it, it means that if that is true, if God's always in control of whatever happens to you in your life, it means your suffering, your pain will never be meaningless. That either God is going to rescue you from it or he's working some better good in you through it. A suffering, it, it's far more troubling if, if God is in control because he could have stopped it, but he didn't. And yet it also means it will never be meaningless because God is directing your story to a better end than where you are now. And so the Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel understood that. That's why in his life he'll have this confidence to them, even though he's in the middle of a world that's completely opposed to him. He'll have this, this faithfulness among him to where he, he could die, it's okay. You'll hear him say that. He, there, there's this, this confidence and this hopefulness to him because he believes God is running history. And so life without control is never meaningless. If God is running your life, not you, it means it, nothing that ever happens to you will be without meaning or without purpose or without God working in you in some way. But secondly, and I was already hinting at this, a life without control is a life of hope. Daniel, it's not a pessimistic book. It's a hopeful book. Right? It doesn't mean that, that, that Daniel's a naive book. Right? It's very realistic. Um, so we have a phrase around Christ community that we believe Christians should be, be hopeful realists. Right? We're realists about, uh, about the world around us. We're not blind or naive to some of the challenges we face, but we're also deeply hopeful because we, we believe God is in control. Right? We expect to feel out of the place in the world around us. That's okay. We're realistic. And yet we know God is in control of history. So we're not anxious. We're not fearful. We don't have to grab onto power, try to get control back in our world. We know God is running Things that we were never meant to have control. And yet, as I said, that's not a call to passivity or a call to inaction. It's actually, it is a call to action. And throughout the series, we'll talk about what it means to, to live into a life of control. And, and I want to start in two places this morning. As we think about being a people who are called to live life without control, two things that, two thoughts of action that, it, that, that we're called to this morning. First is that, that we're called to learn from those who know how to live life without control. Or the, the, I mentioned before, I'm, not, I'm just not anxious like I was maybe six or seven months ago. And the reason is because I was sitting across a friend of mine who's African-American. She's a Christian. And I was sort of laying out my unease about both the election cycle, the culture in which we live. And I, and I said to her what I, I said this morning, which is I feel, feel like things are out of control and I feel like I don't have a home. I feel like I don't fit here. And she looked at me and I'll never forget this. She said, you know, that's, that's actually where I've lived my whole life. Like I don't fit in quite with, with my race and that... Um, 
But the reality is, is I've never felt in control of my life. There are a lot of forces on me that I have no control over. And after talking to her and, and reflecting on, I mean, think of, of the way the black church has, has influenced our culture. Right? Even though from its inception, it has been, it, been persecuted and out of control, right? So the, the, when, when slaves began meeting as Christians, slave owners tried to put it to a stop so they couldn't gather as Christians and worship together. In the Jim Crow era, it was the black churches that were bombed and threats of violence because that is where social change was happening. And think of all the social change that, that the black church has, has done in our culture, even in the midst of great suffering and persecution. Think of the preaching it's produced, the music it's produced. So we need to learn from those who live life without control. And, and I would say not just the minority church here in our context, but also the global church. That, that our, our primary global partner here at, at Christ Community and our Shawnee Mission Campus is the China Partnership. And I recently got an email from one of their, their leaders who was asking us to pray for them, asking me to pray for them. And in the email, he, he said this, which to me just shows a very different reaction to a, a culture that is hostile to them than we in the American church tend to have to our own culture. Here's what he wrote. He said, there's been quite some development of the government's regulation concerning religion. A new release of regulation by the administrative office was publicized to invite feedback from the society. And the continent shelf shows a strong motive to control Christianity and a seeming attempt to shut down house churches. This spares more prayers and trust in the Lord. The pastors among us are starting to talk about and prepare for severe persecution and even jailing for Christ's name. Truly, his name is to be praised and his arm is to be trusted. I just have to say, that's a very different reaction than I hear in our culture. <laughs> Even though we have far less to fear, right? Like none of us are fearing imprisonment for being Christians. And yet you hear the reaction, his name is to be praised, his arm is to be trusted. There's a confidence there, a hopefulness. Even though, hey, we may go to jail. And so I've, I've spent an increasing amount of time around Chinese pastors and and I would not use the word anxious to describe them fearful or fretful or, or worried. Realistic, sure, yeah. But there's a confidence, a hopefulness to their faith. And I reflect on the anxiety often that we Christians in our culture exhibit, and it's, it's and, and me in my own life, and it's, it's just embarrassing. May we trust God. We're not meant to have control, we're called to trust even in the midst of hostility. And so may we, may we learn in this season as a church, as we enter into a new place, as, as Christians in our own society, may we learn from those who know how to live this life, who are living this life now. And secondly, the other call to action is that we, we're called to practice the discipline of giving up control. What I mean by that is, is we as a church believe strongly in spiritual disciplines, and there's one spiritual discipline where you don't really do anything. I mean, you do, you're speaking, but you, you give up all control, and that's, that's prayer. Right? Prayer is the place where you don't grab control. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why prayer for us is often a struggle in our, our context is because we, we try to make prayer the place where we grab control, right? where we give lists, God the list of th all the things he needs to do for us. Right? And if he doesn't do those things, well, then we're just going to go do them some other way. Right? It's prayer. We try to make prayer a way we grab control, but prayer is not where you grab control. I love this quote from Eugene Peterson, who defines prayer, I think, in, in a great way, in just one sentence. He says, The task of prayer is not to get God to do something I think needs done, but to become aware of what God is doing so that I can participate in it. The prayer will be central to the book of Daniel for a reason. That Daniel goes to prayer not because it's where he can grab back control, he can feel in control of things, it's because he knows it's the Lord who put him in, in Babylon. The Lord is... is running his life. And so maybe, maybe the place 
to take my anxiety and my fear is not in grabbing control of my life, but going to the throne and spending time with the one who is in control. So I would just ask, what are you feeling today? Anxiety? Fear? Anxious about the country, the times in which we live? Aren't you glad God invites you into a life where you're not called to be in control, but He is? And I realize that sounds terrifying, right? In our culture, we want control. We want to determine our our vocational future. We want to grab control of our kids' lives. We want to grab control of our, as much as we can, we want to be in control. And yet, yet the life the Bible calls us to is a life where we acknowledge, no, it's, it's God. He runs my life. I trust Him. Which raises the question, how, how do we know we can trust him? Right? How can Daniel know he's not going to go and die hopeless in Babylon? And they're not going to strip all of his faith, all of his religion, and he's going to be left nothing and die alone? And how can we be confident that if we give up control of our lives to this God, we won't be left alone and waiting? Well, there's this fascinating moment just before Jesus is crucified where Pontius Pilate, um, this foreign ruler, this foreign king like Nebuchadnezzar, has complete power over Jesus. And, and he's very frustrated with Jesus because Jesus won't give him a straight answer. He won't answer any of his questions. So Pilate looks at Jesus and says to him, you're not going to speak to me. Don't you know who I am? I have the power to kill you or let you go free. And Jesus looks at Pilate in that moment and says, you would have no authority over me unless someone else had given, to, given it to you. Right? It's this amazing expression of confidence and also acknowledging he's about, he's about to die. He's about to go and be crucified. Because Jesus, Jesus went the way of Daniel. He went and suffered under the hand of a foreign king. Only unlike Daniel, Jesus doesn't just suffer. He actually dies for you and for me so that we can know our suffering, it's never in vain. Right, so that we, we could know there is a hope in the midst of our life, no matter what may happen to us. So that we could know once and for all, we can trust God to run our lives and not ourselves. Which means the church, this place that we gather together, we are not to be a people of anxiety or fear. A people fretting, a people worried. Right? It doesn't mean we're naive or stupid, we're realistic. Right? The, the world we live in crucified our Messiah, Jesus. So we're a realistic people about the world in which we live. But we're also a deeply hopeful people because the Messiah whom this world has crucified is not dead. He is not in his tomb. And which means no matter what happens to you, no matter what pain may enter into your life, no matter what may seem uncertain around you, God is in control. The Jesus, the one who died and gave himself up for you. He is not in a tomb. He's at the right hand of God reigning over this universe. And he himself suffered and died. And if he went through that, that life for you, he can run your life and bring you to a place of resurrection as, as well. Let's pray.